Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to deal with one of the passages that a lot of skeptics, when they come to the Bible, try to say, oh, well, it must be false because look at this false prediction of Jesus. Want to know what it is? Keep listening. If you appreciate this content and the other content put out here at the Freed Thinker podcast, whether as a Freed Bite or a Freed Way Thinker or one of these full editions of the Freed Thinker podcast, why not consider becoming a patron? You can head over to the blog, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, and follow the Become a Patron link towards the top, or you can follow us on Patreon uh, and sponsor us there. We would greatly appreciate it, uh, and your sponsorship goes towards helping some of our uh, technical limitations that we have here. Uh, as always as well, thank you for your iTunes reviews. Definitely helps us as we come up uh, higher and higher in search ratings. Although, honestly, uh, listening to this episode uh, and listening to other episodes definitely helps. Uh, the, more, the more downloads, the better. So if you are uh, brand new to the Freed Thinker podcast or you've only listened to a couple episodes, why not dig into the entire back catalog and listen all the way through? Let's get a boost in downloads. I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you like it, one of the best ways that you can share this podcast is to share it. Share it on social media, share it around. I cover a lot of topics, chances are. Uh, I've hit on something that you and your friends or people you know are asking you about, about the, uh, the Bible and our Christian faith, please feel free to share and share and share again. Share early and share often. Well, thank you again. Uh, let's dive right into this episode asking, did Jesus make a false prediction? Enjoy the show. The question before us is, did Jesus predict the rapture within 40 years of his death? That is the, the, the supposed problem of Genea Aute, or this generation in Greek, and Ponta Tauta, these things uh, found in Matthew 24. I'd like to give some preliminary thoughts and some methodology before we go. So I'd like to start this discussion of the passage with a preliminary statement about a common exhortation to read the scripture in its quote-unquote plain or literal senses. This exhortation comes not surprisingly from both literalists and critics. Liam Frazier notes in his paper, uh, The Secret Sympathy, New Atheism, Protestant Fundamentalism, and Evolution, of the somewhat paradoxical but wholly explainable reality that Protestant fundamentalists and the New Atheists typically have an affinity for the same kind of modernist literalism, which would have been utterly foreign to authors of any biblical text. 
This tendency to demand that a text can have but one possible interpretation, and that such an interpretation is found only in a prima facie, largely ignorant, reading of the text may be broadly helpful in some cases for a general reading of the Bible at large, or some general biblical narrative, but when held to with rigid absolutism, much of the nuance and, ironically, historical meaning of various texts is, in specific is just lost. However, they often violate their own hermeneutic when it suits their theological framework and will interpret clear passages by ambiguous ones, thus violating the hermeneutical principle of the analogy or the rule of faith, which is in plain terms, that the clear and explicit passages should always interpret the ambiguous and metaphorical ones. On the other hand, the new atheistic critic will often only interact with the literalist, typically because this is the religious background of their own life history, and thus assume that their reading of a passage is the only valid one and that any Christian who wants to hold to a literal reading of the passage an equivocation of the meaning of literal is often glossed over, by the way, must understand it as a literalist would, or else be in violation of some abhorrent scripture twisting or whatever. Like the Protestant fundamentalist, the new atheist will hold to a strange kind of hyper-perspicuity of every individual verse and thus accuse anyone who does not hold that view of an allegorical reading of the text, showing that they understand the history of biblical interpretation about as much as they do the practice of interpretation itself. This conflation of anything which is not in the vein of meaning acceptable to the hyper-literalist with symbolic, metaphorical, or allegorical interpretation comes straight from the anti-intellectualism of their fundamentalistic forebearers. It is almost humorous that neither perspective sees how much in agreement they are, even though they think they are diametrically opposed to one another. However, is a plain or literal reading of any passage always the best? Well, the answer is complicated. It seems that it should be yes and no. A plain reading may very well be a virtue, but what constitutes a plain or literal meaning is much more nuanced than we're aware of at first. And often what we as modern readers may think is the plain reading is not what the ancient authors would have thought was the plain reading. The problem should become immediately obvious when we consider what the plain reading of a text would be for a first century Jew when compared to a 21st century American. In many cases, they are likely the same, but in others, they may be drastically different. We must never forget that the Bible was written at a specific time in history, at a specific location, was steeped in the normal worldview of that culture, and was written in their language, which means that the author would have employed symbols, illustrations, metaphors, grammar, rhetoric, which uh, idioms, genres, and a whole other number of other literary devices of the time period. A humorous example can be seen if we look at the use of heart in the Old Testament. If we were to translate heart literally from the Hebrew, we should actually use the term bowels or pit of the stomach. So why do we use heart? Because our English translators have taken the concept meant by the Hebrews. The bowels for them were seen as the seat of emotion and personhood in the in, in ancient Jewish world, and they translated it into the English parallel. 
heart is the organ we use to represent the seat of emotion and the personhood in Western culture. If the translators had simply left it as bowels, we can imagine what kind of strange interpretations people would have if they had no understanding of the historical and cultural context of the idiom. To make problems even more specific for the text, which we will shortly review, we can also consider that in writing his gospel, Matthew was a first century Jew, translating the Aramaic sayings of Jesus into Koine Greek in order to present his meaning to the Roman Gentiles. Considering this, we can see how layers of meaning or context build to uh, begin to build layer upon layer so that a quote-unquote plain reading becomes much more work than simply reading it in the King, King James Elizabethan English and deciding what makes the best sense to us in our modern worldviews. Thus, for us to understand the plain reading of a passage, it's imperative that we are willing to do the legwork to understand it in its historical, cultural, political, religious, literary, rhetorical, polemical, grammatical, etc. contexts that may be operating within our given passage. So let's state the problem. In Matthew 24, 34, we find Jesus making the statement, quote, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. End quote. If these things refers to all the statements made previously in the chapter, and if those statements refer to what will happen immediately preceding the return of Christ and the end of the world, and if this generation means the 40 or so year generation of those present while Jesus was speaking, then it seems that on the face of it, Jesus made a false prediction. For if Jesus was predicting his eschatological return within 40 years of the Olivet Discourse, and now nearly 2,000 years have passed, then Jesus would have been clearly mistaken. This is an obvious problem for those who want to say Jesus is a messenger from God, let alone the perfect incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, and that the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant word of God. So, what are some possible responses? There are different categories for possible solutions. There are two categories specifically of solutions to this kind of problem under which various iterations of which are possible. The first has to do with the interpretation of genea aute, or this generation. And the second has to do with the interpretation of panta tauta, or all these things. Let us first look at the three possible solutions that fall under the first kind, kind, uh, category, dealing with genea aute, or this generation. Number one, genea aute means something other than a 40-year generation. It's possible that Ganea Aute could mean something other than the generation following Jesus' sermon. The Greek word Ganea is commonly used as a synonym for genos, or race, or stock, or people, and thus may refer to the Jewish race, of, or even to a kind of people such as sinful humanity. However, this seems to be unlikely since every biblical example of this kind of usage of the Greek word genea always has an adjectival modifier. For example, we can see Matthew 12, 39 and 16, 4 uh, that an evil and adulterous generation or Mark 8, 38, where it reads in this adulterous and sinful generation. 
In these examples, we can see that the generation could easily be understood as people such as Matthew 12, 39, and evil and adulterous people seeks a sign. And this is quite a legitimate reading. However, in Matthew 24, 34, such a rendering would seem grammatically strained. While we do have extra biblical examples of an unmodified Genea referring to a kind of people rather than a generation, such as in Homer and Herodotus, and thus is possible in Matthew 24, 34, this seems to strain at credulity considering no other biblical example can be found. But it is possible. Number two. Genea aute means something other than the generation of Jesus' audience. Another option is that Genea aute could refer to a generation, but rather than being the generation of Jesus' audience, it could be the people he referred to previously who would see the signs of the coming. If the signs do not begin until 5000 CE, for example, then Jesus would be referring to that generation present when the signs began. It will be that generation who sees the signs that will not perish prior to Jesus' second coming. However, there seems to be two major problems with this response. The first problem is that one would have to explain why Jesus would use the near demonstrative this, aute, rather than a form of the far demonstrative, a kenos, or that. While grammatically both are technically acceptable, since if this interpretation is correct, Jesus had introduced the subject and thus can legitimately refer to it as this, it is simply uh, implausible to read this as that in a future prediction, especially considering that Jesus had no issues with it previously, and we find typically uh, far demonstratives in such cases. The second problem is that this interpretation seems to make the statement just utterly inconsequential. What sense would it make to explicitly refer to something that is necessarily implied by something else? If the tribulation would only last seven years, which is the view commonly held by those who attempt to use this objection to the problem in order to say that Jesus was referring to the generation of the Jews living at the time of the tribulation, then what sense would it make to say that a generation would not perish before the end of the tribulation? It'd be like saying that a generation would not pass away before a given president will leave the office. Well, if a president can only be in office for a maximum of eight years, then obviously 40 years will not pass away before eight will. This interpretation just simply makes the statement utterly trivial. A third kind in this category is that Ganea Aute, when reverse translated into Aramaic, means something other than a 40-year generation. While this interpretation is similar to that of the first, it has one major advantage— it states that the problem is only apparent from within the Greek text and not a substantive problem from Jesus as a prediction since he was likely speaking in Aramaic. In fact, in other translations of the New Testament, the problem is also not readily apparent, such as the Syriac Peshitta, which uses the term Sharbeta, which also almost equally can mean generation or race. Thus, the problem is only in Matthew's Greek translation, though Ganea still may have been his best option for a Greek term to translate, and not in Jesus' actual prediction. 
In Aramaic, it would be equally likely that Jesus could have meant this generation as he would have meant this race or this people. In fact, I'll come back to this possible double entendre when we consider that the Olivet Discourse often employs the concept of double fulfillment and typology. Now, while several commentators have taken some form of these solutions dealing with Ganea Aute, we'll now move on to the second category, and in my opinion, the strongest solution to the problem. This is the solution that says the problem is resolved not by looking at Genea, what Ganea Aute means, but at what Ponta Tauta refers to. I will argue that Ganea Aute does in fact refer to the generation of Jesus's audience, though with some implicit and intentional winks to double fulfillment and typology for the eschaton. But that Ponta Tauta does not primarily refer to the events surrounding the second coming of Christ at the end of the world, but the judgment of God executed against the temple at the end of the age of the Old Covenant in 70 CE. These events only typologically point us to the return of Christ and the end of the world. It will be my contention then that this would have been the plain reading of the passage as it was understood by both Jesus and his first century Jewish audience. So let's move into explanations of Ponta Tauta. The second class of interpretations see Ganea Aute, this generation, as referring to the lifetime of those present with Jesus, but interpret Ponta Tauta, these things, as pointing to something other than the last days of the earth as we know it, ending at Jesus' second coming. I have given a brief summary of various hermeneutical themes, such as census plenier, uh, that I think will be helpful uh, for a full and adequate understanding of this passage elsewhere, uh, and if you're interested, you can go there. However, it will not be until the end of this discussion that I'm going to bring the interpretation of the passage in the section on hermeneutics uh, all together. Here, I'll be giving a brief sketch of the interpretation of very, uh, various relevant passages that I find most convincing and the reasons for the conclusion. It is that position that I will now turn my attention. The following comments will be listed under themes found in the, old, in the Olivet Discourse and will be more staccato than continuous. The following metaphors or themes that are expressed in the Olivet Discourse often have deep roots in the Old Testament that will be helpful in understanding how Jesus uses them in his famous sermon. Number one, hyperbole is a kind of literary exaggeration used to illustrate severity or extreme degrees. It's used intentionally as a literary device. What we find in a vast majority of ancient biblical and even modern texts is a wide usage of hyperbole for rhetorical effect. Here we will show that not only was hyperbole common in the Old Testament, but it was also very frequent surrounding the theme of divine judgment, especially in apocalyptic sections. Here are a handful of examples that can be drawn primarily from the Old Testament, but also some cases alluded to elsewhere in the New Testament that are in the Olivet Discourse. The first is the Great Tribulation. We can see uh, in Exodus 11.6, there will be loud wailing throughout all Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be. Daniel 9.12, you have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like this, nothing ever, uh, ever been done like this, what has been done to Jerusalem. 
Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Joel 2, 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Ezekiel 5.9, because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. By the way, in this verse in Ezekiel 5.9, we have almost a direct corollary between Ezekiel's pronouncement of judgment on Jerusalem by Babylon in 56, 586 BCE and Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse. The next one is sun, moon, and stars. Let's look at some of these verses. Isaiah 13.10, this is uh, concerning the judgment of Babylon in 539 BCE. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising of the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Isaiah 34.4, referring to the judgment of Edom in 703 BCE. All the stars in the skies will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from a vine, like shriveled figs from a fig tree. Ezekiel 32.7, referring to the judgment of Egypt in 568 BCE. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. Joel 2.10, the judgment on Judah in 586 BCE. Before them, the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. Amos 8.9 reads, uh, and this is regarding the judgment of the northern kingdom in 722 BCE. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. There's also the sign of the sun. And Daniel 7, 13 to 14 reads, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. If we compare that to Matthew 26, 64, which reads, You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. End quote. This one's particularly interesting because at Jesus's ascension, he now tells the apostles that from then on, they will see him, quote, coming on the clouds, end quote. This was not to be a one-time future event, but rather a perpetual state of authority that Christ would be seen in, typified by his riding on a cloud. What does this mean for our passage when we look back two chapters? We'll find out. The next one is gathering the elect. The angels can be seen as, can be, the word for angels, angelos, can actually be uh, translated as messengers. In fact, some have thought that rather than angelic intervention, that preaching may be what's in view here. 
Uh, the word gather, soon ago, uh, being used is, is, is often used in a non-physical sense, and this can be seen in John eleven fifty one to 52. Rather than some kind of eschatological end-time gathering, it can refer to a spiritual calling and gathering rather than a physical one. So the gathering of the elect can be seen as a spiritual thing, not necessarily the end-time gathering all the church together. The second response is that it's also helpful at this point to see verse 34 and 35 as transitional statements. It reads, So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 34 then is a conclusion statement. If Jesus was not changing subjects, the placement of the verse here would be unintelligible. There'd be no reason to add a conclusion and transition statement at this point if Jesus was not changing the subject. So there's a distinct move from this generation to that day between these two sections. One is referring to events that will take place in the time frame of an approximate generation, and the other using the standard Hebraic term for the final eschatological period, that day. That is, before verse 34, it speaks of days, and after verse 34, it speaks of the day. Again, a common Jesus term for meaning the final judgment. Before verse 34, there are signs of what Jesus is addressing, and it is possible for people to know what is coming. Notice the warnings for people to take heed, to abandon their possessions, to take for the hills, etc. After verse 35, there are no signs, and we're told that no one can know the precise time. One will be taken, one will be left. They will not know the time and the hour. This, this ability to know is drastically different on the other side of the transition statement where there is no ability to know. In addition to this, Jesus claims that he doesn't know the time of his second coming in verse 36, but he does know the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 6, 25, 29, 30, and 34 leading up to it. In fact, as a historical aside, what's interesting to note is that when the siege of Jerusalem took place, it was the Christians who actually survived in mass because they believed it was a fulfillment of this very passage and they fled for the hills. What no one seems to ever mention when discussing this passage is that if the early church thought that Jesus' second coming was going to happen in that generation and that the fall of Jerusalem was the culmination of history, then what would have been the point to abandon their goods and seek refuge in the hills? If they were going to be raptured, it's a, you know, a somewhat anachronistic usage I know, then what would be the point in warning them to flee from the wrath of the city? It wouldn't make any sense because if the idea was that in, in the dispensational sense, they're going to be raptured and captured up. And you think of the, the left behind movies. Again, I don't hold to that theology. But if that was the point of this, why flee for the hills? If you're going to be raptured before the tribulation anyways, just hang out there. Enjoy your stuff. You're going to get raptured. Now, there's also an interesting historical fact. We know that while Jesus extorted them to flee for the hills, and I use the idiom, the cliche, they fled for the hills, in actual fact, the Christians fled for several cities in the Decapolis, that's the 10 cities across the river. 
If the early Christians were trying to manufacture the story to make it look like Jesus was predicting the future, when actually the book was being written afterwards, surely they would have made his exhortation match what in actual fact happened, that Jesus extorted them to flee for the hills, and yet they fled to the cities of the Decapolis is a sign of historical reliability. Now, before verse 34, the time frame is a short 40 years. After verse 34, there's a long indefinite period that's mentioned in verses 40, uh, 24, 48, 25, 5, and 2519. Notice that the summation statement as well of these things expressly excludes the second coming. When you see these things, then you will know that Jesus' coming is near. The coming is not included in these things, and thus when a generation will not pass before all these things take place, it does not include the second coming. What follows after verse 35 then deals with the second coming after the signs and shows that it will be unknown and will be preceded by a long period of expectation. Matthew 25, 31 begins the final judgment descriptions. This is after that period of long expectation. We find a helpful summary statement from D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew in the Expositor's Commentary series. He states, quote, if our interpretation of this chapter is right, all that verse 34 demands is that the distress of verses 4 through 28, including Jerusalem's fall, happen within a lifetime of the generation of the living. This does not mean that the distress must end within that time, but only that all these things must happen within it. Therefore, verse 34 set as a terminus a quo for the parousia, or that is the second coming, it cannot happen till these events in verses 4 through 28 take place, all within a generation of A.D. 30. But there's no terminus ad quam to this distress over uh, other than the parousia itself, and only the Father knows when this will happen. End quote. Page 507. So, in summary, the objection that Jesus would have been a false prophet who predicted that his own second coming uh, be in, in, you know, within a generation is simply untenable when we look at the text properly, when we actually read it with proper hermeneutics and we understand the original language and the original audience. But again, why, <clears throat> why would we think that atheistic fundamentalists would ever try to take the time to do proper hermeneutics and exegesis of a passage when they could just use flat hyper-literalism and, and then grind their axe saying, therefore, Jesus is a false prophet. Well, as we commonly see, atheists handle uh, biblical passages about as well as they handle philosophy. Not that well. Well, thank you again for joining me. I hope this was an enjoyable episode for you. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, condemnations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or stop on by the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Good night, and God bless.